Man, it's good to see you. My name is Josh, and once upon a time I went to this church, and uh, it's great to be back. For all our guests, welcome. This is such a good day to be together. I'm one of the ministers here, and if this is your first time, welcome. We're just glad to welcome you to our family time, both here as well as online, to all those joining us here in our city and around the country, and for some of those who are joining us around the world. We love you. God bless you. May He keep you wherever you are today. And I pray that the word that really comes from chapter 2 of Revelation this morning will be a blessing to you and a blessing to all of us. Before we dive into the text this morning, two quick things. Number one, out in the lobby are some more of our journals. If you're wanting to keep up with what we're talking about and have it more than just the afternoon, if you're filling in notes, this is a great resource to be able to just jot things down. They're free. Get one. They're at tables out in the lobby. Uh, We'll even let you get up right now. It won't offend anyone if you want to hop up, grab one if you don't have one, but Uh, Take notes. Allow this to be something that you hold on to and able to refer back to. Not because of the one communicating, but because of the text that we get to look at. I believe it will be a blessing to you. So those are available in the lobby as a gift to you. And number two, and more exciting, some of our dear friends, Kevin and May Faulkner. A couple of our missionaries are here this morning. Can I embarrass you enough just to say, just wave your hand or stand up or right over here. Will you say a big morning welcome? We love Kevin, we love May, and the work that they do on behalf of this church and others around the world. Uh, May will be here till Tuesday, I believe, and then Kevin on Friday. You're going to wing your way out of here as well, but we love you both. God bless you. You ready to dive into God's Word? We're going to do it anyway. You might as well pretend. You ready to dive into God's Word, church? Grab your Bibles. Go with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to get in there in a moment. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of something that you may already know, but it's simply this, that first impressions are often lasting impressions. How many of us know that the way you are presented first time often is the way people think of you for all time? In fact, this is why many of us will kind of dress up on a first date or maybe we'll brush our teeth, brush our hair. Some of you are laughing because you're like, really? That's what you do? Okay, okay. You brush your teeth, you brush your hair. Just, just do that. Others of us, you'll actually polish your shoes. Did you know that really busy people, but smart people, they do sort of a shortcut to see if you take care of yourself. They'll actually just look at your shoes. Did you know that? Because the thought is, if you don't take care of your shoes, you don't take care of yourself, so therefore, and all of us now are looking at our scuffed shoes or sandals and going, whoopsie. But we do these things because we know that first impressions are often lasting impressions. It's not fair, but it's just the reality. In fact, there's no second chance to make a first impression, is there? And I think a lot of us this morning, if we were to talk about first impressions, a lot of us would say, yeah, the first impression that I had of Jesus is the lasting impression I've had of Jesus. And I think for many of us, the reason our faith seems to struggle in a difficult world is because our impression of Jesus when we were five, six, seven, eight, as beautiful as it was, it was a little kid impression of Jesus. And that little picture of Jesus, you know, the flannel board Jesus, as beautiful as he is, is not big enough or robust enough to sustain us in a world that is really difficult at times. And so here's all I want us to do this morning. We're going to look at chapter 2 where, spoiler, Jesus talks to his people, the first four of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at all four of them. It's going to take some time, but I think it's going to be valuable. And here's all I want you to know. He's going to meet them where they're at, not where he's at. He's going to come to them in the place where they need him most. And so maybe this is the way I'd like for you to think about it, is that while first impressions are often lasting impressions, next slide it says the first impression of Jesus you have, or maybe you had when you were a little kid, 
is not the only impression of Jesus you need. It's how do you have a full impression of an infinite God? As you grow older and your capacity to hold more grows, he'll reveal more of himself to you. And today he's about to just open a bucket of his presence on us. And I pray that in this space we will meet Jesus and see him afresh. I think we need to pray over it, don't you? Let's do that. Father, I ask you to come to us now. Show us the bigness, the beauty, the, just the boldness of our Savior Jesus that we may be changed by him and love him more. We ask this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Ready to read? Let's stand. We're going to read quite a bit here this morning, so prop yourself on a friend or on the chair in front of you. We're going to begin in verse 12 of chapter 1 and then hop to chapter 2. Here we go. I turned around. This is John, by the way, on the island of Patmos speaking. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. If you were here last week, who is that text about, church? It's about Jesus. And Jesus says to John, right therefore, in verse 19, what you have seen, John, what is now and what will take place later. Now take a deep breath. Here we go. Chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him. Who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands? I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. We'll talk about that, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came back to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. What does that mean? We'll come back to it. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, Not even in the days of Antimus, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We're going to come back to that next Sunday, and it is cool. All right. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering and will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on, hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. And read this last verse out loud with me, church. Are you ready? Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the whole church says, you may be seated. So that was clear. You guys ready to go home? No questions whatsoever. All right, let's start here. First off, I am a high D. Anyone else here a high D personality? Any of you even know what a high D personality, here it is, a high D personality, give me the bullet points, get to the point, let's move on. So here you go. This is my high D sermon. Point number one, if you want to take notes, point number one is simply this, Jesus is in our midst. Pause there. I didn't say he is somewhere out there. I didn't say he's in your car, although he is there when you're there. I'm saying in this very moment, in this very room, in this very space, the creator of the universe inhabits these four walls. Is anyone else just a little intimidated and in awe by that fact? Let me, let me, let me try that again. Is anyone else grateful, let's start there, that Jesus Christ is in our midst? You say, but where do we get that in the text? Let me walk you through this. Verse 1, notice what he says. This is so important. He says, these are the words of him. Who is him in the book of Revelation? Church? Jesus. It's almost always the right answer. You can call it out. We'll still pat you on the head if it's wrong. These are the words of him, Jesus, who, notice this, walks among the seven golden lampstands. What are the lampstands? Verse 20 told us the lampstands refer to the churches. Why are you called a lampstand? Well, think with me. Jesus says, you are the light of the what? A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. You are the lamp. And he has put you on a stand so you will be lifted up so that the world will see him. The church is the light of the world because Christ lives in us and through us. Jesus walks among his churches. Notice the number there. How many churches? Church? 
seven. Now, why seven? Does this mean that Jesus is only going to talk to seven specific little churches? Yes and no. The number seven is a symbol for completion. There are seven days in the week. So God's perfection, God's completion. Seven symbolizes more than just those seven. It symbolizes all churches in all places. It refers to, yes, those seven, but it also, Jesus is speaking to all the churches in the province of Asia. And all the churches in the Roman Empire. And all the churches around the world. And friends, Jesus is talking now to all churches throughout time and space. Meaning the words in Revelation 2 are not just for them. They are for you and me and us as a church. So let us hear with ears what the Spirit has to say to us. Now, Jesus is walking among his people. Where are his people? Well, we're told that John is on the island of Patmos, and Christ comes to him while he is there on the Lord's Day. By the way, what day of the week is the Lord's Day, church? Sunday. Aren't you glad John didn't sleep in on Sunday? I am because we wouldn't have revelation. He shows up to John and he says, John, take a note. I'm going to talk to the seven churches. And so he then begins to speak to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You say, why this order? It's because, notice the cities are in almost a loop. And so from Patmos, the closest city is Ephesus. So the Lord speaks to the churches in order that the mail would travel. So this one letter would be sent to Ephesus, then on to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so the Lord now speaks. He's in our midst, number one. Number two, Jesus knows what you're going through. He's not like some old man asleep on his rocker in the corner who may be physically present but is mentally absent. God knows what you're going through, friends. He is not indifferent or ignorant to your circumstance or the circumstance of our city, our country, or this world that he loves so much. Did you notice again, verse 1, let's go again. He says, to the, what's that word? To the what? Angel of the church in Ephesus. Right. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the ox among the seven golden lampstands. Notice this. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. In other words, God knows what you're going through. Before we move on, can we just answer this question? What is he talking about here with angel? Anyone know what he's talking about here? In fact, some of you would be saying, Diggs, what does he mean? Okay, are you ready? Write this down. Here's the first answer that you'll need to hear. You're going to hear this a number of times from me through the series. What does this mean? I don't know. I don't know. Now, we have three good guesses, but I don't know which one for sure. I'll tell you, I think it's the last one, but let me give them to you. The first one, some people say the angel refers to the messenger of God's word in the church because the word angel, the Greek word, literally means just messenger. Who delivers the message each week? The preacher. And so he, some people say, well, he's talking to the preacher. Now, there's a problem with this. It means then that you now have to think of preachers as, yeah, I'm not buying this one either, by the way, okay? <laughs> I know me too well. So that's one option. could be the preacher. The second option is that the angel is symbolically referring to the ethos, the attitude the culture of the church. What do they value? What do they like? What do they not do so well at? But here's the one I think it is. 
And many will agree, they think, no, no, no. He is literally speaking to an angelic being that has been assigned to each church. Say, what? Yeah, go to Daniel, the Old Testament book, and you will see that angels are given some very interesting assignments over certain areas to care and protect and provide for different groups. I tend to believe that that's what he's talking about here. But let me be very, very cautious with you here. If this is interesting to you, do not run down the track of studying angels and getting all excited about angels. Paul warns us not to do that. Why? Because we do not worship or get enthralled by angels. Who do we worship church? Five of you know the answer. It's Jesus. We worship him. It's all about Jesus. Always has been. So let's walk through these four churches. Remember, Jesus knows what you're going through. So Ephesus, what's going on in Ephesus? Let's start here with a little bit of history. Ephesus was a big city, an important city in the ancient world. The church there was actually begun by two of Paul's friends, Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. I mean, with a name like that, that kind of combination, you know they were meant for each other. This is Priscilla. You need to meet my friend Aquila. I think you would get along really well. They start the church. Paul writes letters to the church. His protege, Timothy, begins to pastor and help lead the church. In 70 AD, though, Timothy is executed. He is killed for defending the truth. By 90 AD, John, the one writing the book of Revelation, is now what we call the bishop over the churches in Ephesus. All that means is he kind of helped lead the leaders. After all, he walked with Jesus. He kind of knows a thing or two. This was a big church in a big city. In fact, Ephesus was one of the biggest cities, one of the most affluent cities in the ancient world. It was just an outstandingly large and impressive city, but it was also a very hard church or place to be the church. It was a hub of pagan activity. The emperor Domitian had a temple there that he expected you to come and worship. There were temples there built to the goddess Diana. By the way, fun fact, Want to hear a fun fact? Say yes. Okay, here's your fun fact. In the city of Ephesus, there's a massive temple to the goddess Diana. Part of their ritual worship was to have cultic prostitutes with whom you would quote-unquote worship. I'm going, to be, I'm going to end there and try to be delicate, okay? On the other side of the street was a massive, massive library. Here's the fun fact. Did you know that there was an underground tunnel that went from the library over to the temple. So you'd have husbands telling their wives, sweetheart, I need to go read at the library for a little while. And they would make their way to the temple. It was a highly pagan city is what I'm trying to tell you. And because it was such a hard city, the church became hard herself. Have you ever known someone to become hard because of their circumstances? It's it's natural. Jesus is so impressed with their commitment to the truth He even says, you guys, hold on to the truth. You push false prophets out. If you want to preach in that church, you don't just go through a membership class or sign a document. You have to know your doctrine, defend your doctrine, articulate your doctrine. You guys are the real deal. In fact, they are so fiercely loyal to the truth. Jesus commends them for, get this, hating. He says, you hate the Nicolaitans and their practices. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? Again, we don't know for sure. But we think that they were probably the golden corral of the religious world. How many of you know what the restaurant, the golden corral, is? Any of you ever eaten there or just driven by it? And, the, and like just the, okay. What is the golden corral? Anyone know what kind of place they are? Buffet. What do you do at a buffet? 
You get the stuff you like, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you ignore all the things you don't. And so, the Nicolaitans were like the golden corral. They had a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of this philosophy, a little bit of that ideology, and they put it together to create something, hear me now, that agreed with and complemented what they already believed without ever challenging anything that was wrong. I know we don't have any golden corral Christians in America, do we? But here's the problem. He says, you guys are against the Nicolaitans. You hate them. There's a problem, though. He says, you have forgotten your first love. You've become loveless. Because the reality is, it is hard to be known for hating and for loving at the same time. Ask ten people in the street, what is the church known for? And they will first give you the list of what we are against, won't they? Well, you hate this group of people. You hate this practice. You don't do this. You don't support that. These are the things you are against. And while that may be good and true, we have missed the heart of the gospel, which is to love God and to love others. The gospel message, Jesus says, is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. He says you hate them, but you have forgotten the core of the gospel if you do not repent. Now, now, repent simply means to turn around or to return. If you don't come back to me, he says, then I will remove your lampstand. Why? Because a church without love is no light to the world. So return. Repent. It's always been about loving Jesus and loving others. We sing the song about it, don't we? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have this whole world, but give me Jesus. I think that's what the Smyrna church was known for. In fact, Smyrna is one of the only two churches that has no correction against it. We grew up, or for a number of years, we lived outside of Nashville in the suburban sort of city center area of Smyrna. And I like to joke with my Nashville friends that I was flawless because I lived in Smyrna. And then they said, Diggs, we know you too well. But Smyrna is one of the only ones. Now, their city was a very difficult city, but it was a beautiful city. In fact, Smyrna was known of as the Rose of Asia. Today it is still in the same region in Turkey. It's called Izmir. Everyone say Izmir. But it's a very difficult city. In fact, the church there was very small, very, very struggling. In fact, did you hear the words Christ used? He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. That word affliction It goes back, sort of the root of it goes back to this idea of pressing grapes. Jesus is saying, I know the intense pressure that you are under. I know the difficulty of following me in a culture that is absolutely opposed to me. Hear me now. If you oppose what is evil, if you oppose darkness, don't expect darkness to love you, church. When you say that is wrong, expect that which is wrong to say you're hateful, you're a bigot, you're a xenophobe, you're whatever else may be thrown at you. And you know what it's like to be under pressure, don't you? See, I don't even know half the stories here, but some of the stories I know, I know some of you business people, the pressure you feel because you are choosing to do not only what is legal, but what is moral and ethical, and the competitors aren't. And in this climate... And it's like, ah. Some of you parents, the pressure you feel right now in raising children in a culture 
that has called what is good evil and evil good. And you say, what once was a safe outlet of entertainment for my kids, I can't show them that anymore because it is wicked. And I'm now having to fight battles from outside and explain to my little kids on the inside why we're not doing what we used to do. You know the pressure, don't you? I think about you students in your schooling, how there are practices and things going on, and you know the pressure of saying, this is right, and I cannot be a part of that. And what about the dating groups in here? Man, you know the pressure, if you're dating, of what it's like to live in a swipe right culture, don't you? And when you state, this is how far I can go and no farther, how you are scoffed at, how you are pushed away. This is a church that was afflicted. And Jesus is honest enough to say, you are going to suffer for your trust in me and following me. That's just the way it's going to be. But notice what he says. He says, it will last for 10 days. Did you notice that in the text? Kind of a weird little number, isn't it? Does that mean that if they're arrested, they'll only be in prison for 10 days? Well, no, that number is symbolic. What does it symbolize? Well, 10 symbolizes human completion, meaning whatever you're setting out to do as a human once you are finished with it. Why 10? How many fingers do we have, everyone? 10. How many toes do we all have? Someone out there is going, you don't know my redneck cousin Bobby who blew off two of his toes. Okay, for most of us, completion. Jesus is saying that they will throw you in prison for a period of time, but hear me now. He says, fear not, because when their work is done at the end of the end, they do not get the last word. If you stay with me, you are on the side of the king, and if you are under pressure today, friend, The word from Jesus to you is fear not. He is not done and he will provide for you. Pergamum. Another beautiful city. In fact, if you were to go there today, you would see that it is up on a hill. It was built on this beautiful hill overlooking for miles. And on this top, you'd have the Areopagus. You'd have buildings and temples. The problem was, Jesus says, this is the place where Satan has its throne. Now, I don't know about you, the housing market's pretty rough. I don't care how good the neighborhood might be, how inexpensive the houses might be. If Jesus says that's where Satan has his throne, it is not a neighborhood you want to move into. Can I get an oh yeah from anyone? So Jesus is like, this is where Satan lives. I'm like, well, why in the world? Let's talk geometry. Let's talk history here. This is a picture of this ancient city of Pergamum. If we were to pull out, you'd see just a massive space. They had temples and buildings. They had temples, for instance, to the healing god, Asclepius. Everyone say, Asclepius. Sounds like tilapia, if you know that kind of fish, Okay. Asclepius. Well, what is that? He was the healing god. His symbol was snakes. In fact, the symbol was two snakes wrapped around a pole. Does that sound familiar to anyone here? Where have we seen that image? This is on your ambulances and other things. That's a pagan symbol. It comes from this. And the belief was that these snakes would heal you. So you, as a person, if you were sick, you'd go, you'd lay in the courtyard of the temple of Asclepius while hundreds of snakes, hopefully not poisonous, would slither over you through the night, and the hope was that one of them would heal you. Friends, if I did that, I would just die of whatever. I mean, i just just fear, and that would be the end of it, regardless. So you have Asclepius. You have a tower, an altar to Zeus, the god of the gods. And they said of Zeus, he is our savior. You also had a temple, again, to the emperor. 
This was where Satan lived. It was a difficult place to be a Christian. But Christ says, you have not bowed your knee. You have done what is right, even when it was so difficult. Even when they killed one of your own, you did not give up or give in. He says, but Balaam lives there. Now, if you were to go to the church roll and you look down all the names, you would not find a guy named Balaam. How many of you know the name Balaam from the Old Testament? Show of hands, any of you. Keep them up, keep them up. Now, let me help the rest of you. How many of you remember the story of the talking donkey? Anyone else? Okay, a few more. Balaam is the guy with the talking donkey. So Jesus is not saying there's a man named Balaam. Rather, he's referring back to an Old Testament character as a symbol of what's happening in their time. By the way, anytime you get a little confused in Revelation, go to the Old Testament. There are more Old Testament references in Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. Who was Balaam? He was a prophet who was hired to curse Israel, but he wouldn't do it. Instead, he taught Balak to cause the Israelites to intermarry, thus bringing pagan worship and ideology into their culture. What's happening here in Pergamum? You have not fully sold out, but you are starting to intermarry your beliefs and practice. Not physical marriage, but you are beginning to, here's the word, compromise. You are beginning to give a little bit, find ways around. You say, why? One last detail on Pergamum. It was a guild city. If you were a part of the silversmiths, or if you were a carpenter, or if you wanted to start in a job, you would go to Pergamum, and you would go to where the silversmiths met, or where the carpenters met. Where do they meet? In the temples. How do they meet? You sacrifice an animal. You cook the animal. You give meat to all the participants. And you give honor to that God for providing for you. And if the worship then in your little guild meeting got rocking, they bring out the prostitutes. And what was happening is the Christians there were saying, I don't know how to be a follower of Christ and maintain my status or get along in this culture. And some of us are there today, aren't we? I mean, for heaven's sake, some of you will tell me, Diggs, you don't know what it's like. You only work one day a week. You preach on Sundays. But for the rest of us during the week, as though I live on Mars during the rest of the week, it's the real world. Balaam lives here. It's his rules. We have to compromise. We have to make little side deals. Otherwise, we cannot get along. So we have to kind of go along to get along. And so some of us make compromises with our integrity. We make compromises with our ethics. We make compromises with what we say. And Jesus says, if you don't stop, I will fight you with the sword of my mouth. Now, that's a weird reference. Let's just get biblical for a minute here. How many of you remember growing up and you have the flannel board and you have the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6? Any of you remember the armor of God? Let's see some hands in here. You got the helmet of what? What was it? Salvation, right? The breastplate of righteousness. Yes, some of you. The belt of truth and, do you remember the sword? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What is Jesus saying? You understand what falsehood is. You understand the compromises we make where we support things we should not support because, well, it's just what we've always done. It's where our family always goes. It's what we've always done before. You, you kind of give in a little bit here, a little bit there. He says, the way you know what truth is is through the Word of God, and it cuts through the lies that we tell ourselves just because we think that's what we have to do. He says, 
I love you too much to leave you where you are, Pergamum. Repent, or I will come against you. Now, are you ready for the last one? Say yes. Here we go, last one, Thyatira. Everyone say, Thyatira. Thyatira. Jesus says, you're doing some good things, but that's also where Jezebel lives. Again, is there a woman in the church named Jezebel? No. It's another Old Testament reference. You say, to whom? There was a queen of Israel named Jezebel, married to King Ahab. She was a pagan woman who brought in pagan idolatry to the people of Israel and caused them to celebrate and worship pagan gods. Part of that worship was through cultic prostitution. Again, you notice how our sexual orientation and activity infiltrates everything we do. And he says, because of this, in Thyatira, you tolerate immorality. You you tolerate this behavior that is damaging and damnable. And he says, you must repent. You must stop doing this. Now, what was she doing specifically? Most likely, she was bringing in a type of Gnostic teaching. Everyone say Gnostic. Gnostic. Now, you say, what is that? Okay, hang with me. You've actually seen that right here in America. By the way, there are tons of Gnostics in America. In fact, there are many Gnostics in church and maybe in this church. Are are you ready? Here's a Gnostic belief. The soul and the body are separate. What you do with your body has no impact on your soul or who you really are inside. So what I do with my body on Saturday night has no bearing on who I really am on Sunday morning. Do we have Gnostics in America? It doesn't matter what you watch. You're really not that kind of person. It doesn't matter what you say. You're really not that kind of person. It doesn't matter what you do. You're really not that kind of person. And Jesus says that what you do actually is who you are. What you do is what you become. And so then he says, I will fight against you as well. I will kill the children of Jezebel. Now, he's not talking about literal children. He's saying anyone who ascribes to or holds to her teaching, he is going to cut off. He's going to push away. The Lord takes seriously our morality, church. Remember, he's not just talking to seven churches back then. He's talking to you and to me. And the thing that I wrestle with is, am I a loving person or a loveless person? Am I a person who faces affliction or runs from it? Am I a person who compromises just a little bit here and there, but I'm becoming a different kind of person as I compromise? Am I someone who tolerates immorality and I just simply call it a different lifestyle? Someone else's or mine. And Jesus, in his loving way, says, Hold on to what is true, what is good. Do not let go of the precious gifts I've given you. Hold on. And if you have in the past walked in a direction that is not healthy or helpful or holy, God now says, I'm calling you back home. I'm not done with you. No matter where you've been or what you've done, I'm not done with you yet. He walks among us. He knows what you're going through. And number three, aren't you glad? Number three, he says this. Jesus appears to us as we need him. You say, where does that come from? Last detail, then we're going to call it a day. Did you notice in chapter 1, last week we talked about how Jesus is described with blazing eyes, a face like the sun, a sword coming out of his mouth, bronze feet. And now, Jesus takes those different symbolic parts of himself, and to each church he says, I am the one with blazing eyes and bronze feet, and I give that to you, church. 
I'm the one with the double-edged sword coming out of my mouth, and I give that to you, church. I am the one who has a face like blazing sun. I give that to you. I'm the one who holds the seven stars. I give that to you. In other words, Jesus gives to each of us what we most need in the moment. He's not just the Jesus you grew up with who stood on a flannel board. He is not just Jesus, meek and mild. He is the Jesus that comes to us when we need a warrior. How many of you need someone to fight for you today for your children? How many of you need him to fight for you because you feel weak and incapable? I know I do. He says, I will come as a warrior for others who desperately need a God who cuts through the lies and the falsehood. How many of us need to see what is true and kind of know how to navigate a confused culture? I do. He says, I will come to you as one with bronished bronze feet. Why bronished, bon- uh, whatever that word is, feet. Because they don't crack and break under the weight of difficult times. Who needs a God who's able to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders? He appears to you as you need and as I need. And this morning, here's what you need to hear. He wants to appear to you. He is here. He wants to appear to you now. And so we're going to pray. We're going to sing. And I know some of you say, well, how in the world can we receive a God like that in this day and age? Josh, don't you know how broken the world is? Friends, I watch the news just like you. I've seen what's going on internationally, how the headlines are disturbing. I've watched my 401k and the stock market take a swan dive. And by the way, I'm also aware, like many of you, that guess what? In November, we're in another political cycle. Yippee! There's many things that cause concern, and yet I am reminded of Psalm 23. Do you remember the verse? He prepares a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. God has always shown up to his people when times were hard. And in the midst of difficulty, and yes, even enemies... He says, I will set before you exactly what you need. So what do you need this morning from God? We're going to stand and we're going to pray. And in this moment, I'm going to invite you to speak to him, tell him what you need, and invite him to do with you as he will and come to you as you need. For he is the God who is here. He knows what you need and he will appear to you as you need. Let's stand. Let's pray and then we'll sing. with every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we come to you now. We don't even know what we need, but we ask you to meet us where we are and to give us what we need. I thank you that you know us as well as you knew the churches in Asia Minor. And just as you were in their midst, you were in this very space. Father, I pray for the mama here who doesn't know how she's going to raise the kids on her own, but is desperately trying. Would you hold her close? I pray for the parents who are breaking their backs, trying to provide financially, but they're just going, I I just help. For my friend in this room who's under the crushing weight of a secret sin or addiction, I pray for your forgiveness, and I pray, Lord, that you will please restore them, free them from the shackles. Yes, bring them into the light with others so they can get the help they need, but God, forgive them. And for those of us who just don't know the next step, I pray that you will be the God who lights our path. Just one more step. 
and remind us that at the end of the end, the enemy doesn't get the last word. This broken world does not get the last word. Jesus Christ, you are the last word. And it's to you we pray. Amen.